besides me. No? Okay, so here's a confession for you. I'm high on DayQuil and all kinds of other stuff. So two things. One, I, I might forget that I'm sick and I just give you a hug. Stay away from me. Like, seriously, if I come up to give you a hug, just push me away. I won't be offended. Secondly, if during the sermon and talk today, I just start trailing off or just fall down and fall asleep, somebody just come up here, pick up these notes, and just keep reading. All right? Are we cool with that? <laughs> All right. It's good to see you guys today. I'm, I'm excited to um, see so many new faces. Uh, if it's your first time with us, we ask you to um, get one of these Connect cards. I think we have a picture of it up here. It's a yellow card, and it's just a way that we, we would like to connect with you. We have a gift for you when you turn it in, but we want to get you connected with the family that is the church. We believe here in New City that Sunday is only part of what it means to be the church, but the church is actually the people of God living together, called together by the gospel for God's mission. So we try to live that out throughout the week. If you haven't been able to participate in that part of it yet, I just want to recommend diving into community over the next few weeks. Um, I, I know it's one of those things that we hop around and check out different Sunday services to find the church that's for us, but I just, I just want to recommend checking out community before, uh, before you hop around to other churches because that is where church really happens for us, and it's, it's an awesome thing. Um, love you guys, man. It's good to, good to see you here. Kicking off our new series today, our Back to School series. We just wrapped up Philippians that we walked through this summer, and now we're walking through a series that you guys uh, basically shaped. It's called I Have a Question. And we took all these questions. We, man, we had so many submissions of different questions. Great stuff. I wish we could get to it all, but we've got three Sundays. So we voted on the top three questions. And today we're kicking off the first question, which is science. Aren't science and Christianity incompatible? Um, next week we'll dive into the next question, which is sovereignty. And question goes something the question's full of bumps and hisses uh, <laughs> it's a bumpy question how can God be in control and hold us responsible for our choices and then the, the final week of September is the third and final question we're going to deal with um, and that is if God is full of love how can he allow hell to exist I might, I might just hop up here and use one of these mics is that cool? I like being down here where everybody else is, but I guess I'm going to talk, talk down to everybody today. No, we're not doing that. We're going uh, to stand up here and, and get you guys into this. So I'm excited. Let's dive into the first question today. And let's start with some ancient biblical wisdom about how we even approach issues like this. Because how many of you guys know that issues like science versus Christianity is a pretty hot topic? Yeah. So how do we even approach this? Well, we just walked through Philippians uh, this past summer. And so let's, um, let's look back at Philippians. One of the things that Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, he says this. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility. Everybody say humility. 
humility. Value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you on the interests of others. So, yeah, with that, let me say a prayer, and we're going to dive right in. Lord, um, I pray that wherever we are at today, um, as we come here, whatever our beliefs are about this issue, whatever the beliefs under the beliefs are about this issue, I pray that you would um, speak to us, that you would give us open minds, that you would give us a heart that's hungry for truth, regardless of what that means, and that you'd speak to every one of us today so that we'd be challenged, because we all have areas of our life where we fall short of understanding reality as it stands. And, and I pray that you would just really um, open our eyes even more to um, the world as you've created it and to who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So science and Christianity. Isn't science, aren't science and Christianity incompatible? What a question. I mean, that's, that's a huge question. When you really think about it, where do we start? That's the thing I had to think about a lot this week, man. When you start with a question like that, where do you, where do you even dive into that topic? There's so many places you could get started. And um, so I had to kind of track backward and started with this question. What are we really asking when we wonder about the compatibility of Christianity and science? And there's three major areas that we kind of have to talk about this. Can you guys hear me okay? Okay, cool. Um, Three major areas. We, there's historical compatibility questions between Christianity and science. There are philosophical compatibility questions. And there's anthropological or just like where the rubber meets the road today in society and culture questions about the compatibility of Christianity and science. And like, like we said, this topic has been a cultural minefield for like the last three to 400 years. So you guys ready to walk through a minefield today? Because many of the earliest scientists were 
Christians and people of faith, and they saw science as a pursuit of understanding God and His created world. In fact, belief in God and hope that others would join them in that belief is actually what drove many of them. For example, I'm going to show you a quote from Sir Isaac Newton. You guys remember Newton from high school? Newton's brilliant, right? He composes the uh, universal law of gravitation. Uh, we don't have quotes? The computer died. Oh, we didn't have a charger for the computer? <laughs> yeah. I think I spent like like at least five hours on that PowerPoint. That's <laughs> 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 just his heart me. Christopher Columbus 
didn't even like have this idea originate with him that the world was round. That idea goes back way past medieval times, back to the early Greek philosophers. There is actually no like no theologist, no philosopher in the medieval time that believed the world was flat. I've got a quote for you uh, from this guy is a Harvard professor, evolutionary biologist, and historian. His name's Stephen J. Gould, and he says this. There never was a period of flat earth darkness among scholars, regardless of how the public at large may have conceptualized our planet then and now. Greek knowledge of sphericity never faded, and all major medieval scholars accepted the earth's roundness as an established fact of cosmology. So everybody believed this. Yet, if you walk around this weekend, I challenge you to do this experiment. Ask how many people were taught and still probably believe that in Christopher Columbus' day, the majority of people believe the Earth was flat. Everybody believes this. I did it this week. It's crazy. There's this myth. Like, there's so many myths in our culture. We should create a TV show called, like, Myth Busters. That would be <laughs> We could bust all these myths. Another such myth is the myth of Galileo. Okay? So, Galileo, I know there's this whole controversy. By the way, he didn't invent the telescope, he just perfected it. Okay, and this myth goes, Galileo invented the telescope, saw that the sun didn't revolve around the earth, but actually the earth revolved around the sun. And then he told this to the Pope, who excommunicated him. Have you guys heard that? Okay, but here's, here's actually the truth. Today, no historian would agree with that. In fact, it's just a myth, and I, I think the reason why that myth is still around is because people are trying to promote the idea that Christianity is not compatible with science. So, science. Here's, here's a, you guys heard of Nicholas Copernicus? Nicholas Copernicus was a monk who lived almost a century before Galileo and came up with this idea originally. He wasn't persecuted. He wasn't excommunicated by the church. Johann Kepler came up with this idea, or, or improved this idea, and added the laws of planetary motion a few years after Galileo. He wasn't excommunicated or persecuted by the church. Galileo was excommunicated. But here's the deal, and I challenge you guys to do this, and I don't want to, because we don't have the quotes, the lengthy quotes, I don't want to go all the way into it, but just go home and research the Galileo controversy. Galileo basically spit in the eyes of the he, when he wrote his thesis and scientists didn't accept it immediately, he wrote another thesis that just directly attacked the Pope in the middle of the Inquisition. Like, that's not a smart time to poke your eyes in the most powerful people in the world, or poke your fingers, thumbs, in the most powerful people's eyes, right? It's just not a good idea. So it wasn't science that got Galileo excommunicated. It was actually his controversialist because there's plenty of other people that agree with him that weren't. Okay, got you guys, you guys tracking? Okay, so, um, did you know that following the fall of Rome during the Middle Ages, the monasteries and convents preserved scholarship in Western Europe? Science wasn't frowned upon. In fact, it was encouraged. And during the Middle Ages, the church founded Europe's first universities that produced these scholars like Albert the Great, Roger Bacon, Thomas Aquinas, who, who helped establish the scientific method. At the start of the Renaissance, Christian and Catholic scientists have been credited with a, a, a diverse range of scientific fields, like Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, who prefigured the theory of evolution with Lamarckism, or Friar um, Gregor Mendel, who pioneered modern genetics. Did you know the, the Vatican actually has an observatory and its own academy of scientists? 
that they're busy putting out scientists. I had this really cool picture here, and it's got, I, I, I can't do it. I'm too much of a preacher. I can't just stand still. I got to hold the mic. I got to be able to walk around. Ah! Who did this? <laughs> so, this picture is, I wish I could show it to you. It's Albert Einstein and a guy named Georges Lemaitre. And they're standing next to each other, and the one guy has a priest collar. George, George does. And you say, man, I didn't know Albert Einstein was religious. Well, he's hanging out with this priest, George Lemaitre, who is the guy who basically came up with the idea of the Big Bang Theory. And Einstein actually opposed him on it. It's an interesting thing. But George Lemaitre was this, was this Catholic priest, and also uh, he's a professor in Belgium at the University of Belgium. And he looks at Einstein's work on general relativity, and he improves on it, and comes up with this idea of the Big Bang. And he went from place to place explaining it, and scientists were like, what is this priest know? He doesn't know what he's talking about. But Einstein finally began to accept his theory, and now most schools, in fact, I think most people in this room would probably say that anybody who doesn't accept the concept of an expanding universe is kind of backwards. But what I love about the picture is they're hanging out together. They're like good friends. Whereas today, there's so many people in the religious community and the scientific community that seem divided. It's like they can't find common ground with one another. It's like there's these minefields that kind of go between them. But if so many brilliant minds who love science can also love God, what's the problem? Well, that brings us to point number two. That there is this science versus Christianity out, uh, idea out there. Why is that out there? Why is that out there? It seems that the biggest issue underlying the science versus Christianity notion is not about the actual material claims of either science or Christianity, but it's underlying beliefs that people have about those claims. In other words, many, many people come to both the scripture or to science and they come to the evidence with these pre-established notions, these biases, these beliefs, that they're seeking to support with a body of facts. That's, that's a reality. That's how many people are wired, and that's how we work. And unfortunately, it seems to be true on every side of this issue. For example, science has shifted for a lot of people. Have you noticed that science has become way more than just theorizing and experiments, but it's actually becoming kind of a philosophy? Here's a really important question I want to ask you, I want you to think about. Are there any other kinds of knowledge besides scientific knowledge? Well, in short, the answer is yes. There are other kinds of knowledge, but many people aren't sure about that. A lot of people remember, you guys remember the scientific method in school? You guys remember learning about that? That's awesome, right? Brilliant. Well, actually, there's this little tricky um, it's a little tricky to define the scientific method precisely, but basically it's you make observations, you get a hypothesis, you do experiments, and you measure things and the outcome will either confirm or fail to confirm your hypothesis. But scientists, science has made such amazing progress in certain fields, like medicine or technology, that some people claim that this scientific method or empirical verification is the only way to find any reliable knowledge. That would mean, by the way, that there's no such thing as moral knowledge, no such thing as spiritual knowledge, no such thing as personal knowledge. And that view, that the only knowledge that counts comes from scientific method, is sometimes called scientism. 
not science, but scientism. Scientism essentially just discounts any other forms of knowledge. Um, there's, a, there's a great thinker. His name is Sir John Polkinghorne. And he's got an awesome last name. He's a Cambridge physicist and an Anglican priest. And he, he may be one of the greatest thinkers about science and faith issues in our day. And he has this really helpful illustration. He says, imagine somebody asking you, why is the water boiling in the kettle? I hear the water boiling. Why is it boiling? Well, one person gives an answer and says, because burning gas is heating the water. And another person gives an answer and says, because I want a cup of tea. Which answer is right? Well, they're both right. right? One person is talking about non-personal causes and mechanical forces. That's what science tends to do. The other answer is talking in terms of person, purpose, and intention. It's not scientific, but does that make it any less true? No, it's, it's true, and it's, it's terribly important. See, science involves method that is enormously useful to investigate these large chunks of reality, but it's not the only way to know truth. Let me show you. Consider this statement, okay? Human life is of great value. Do you agree? Yeah. How do you prove that? How do you prove that? Here's another one. It is wrong to live for selfish greed. Do you agree? We can't prove it. I am loved. I love you. How, how can I prove it? I can go up. My wife tries to get me to prove it all the time. But, <laughs> but how do we prove it scientifically? See, scientism is this philosophy that says any dimension it cannot be exhaustively explained by the scientific method. Either it doesn't exist or it just doesn't matter. And here's the deal. It's an ideology. It's a philosophy. And by the way, it really can't hold water by its own measurement. And I'll tell you why. Because it's a philosophy, and you can't prove that philosophy by the scientific method itself. So it can't even hold water. How can you prove that that's true? That only things that, that can be scientifically measured are the things that matter. You can't. So because you can't measure it, it's true. It's a presupposition. It's a belief about science that's underlying many of the claims used by some to pit science against faith. But science can't discount faith. And guys, here's the other thing. Faith shouldn't seek to discount science. They are not mutually exclusive. They're just asking different questions. Science asks how. Faith asks why. Science explains how the water's boiling, and faith asks why the water's boiling. The two go together. They're complementary. They always have been. In fact, it's, it's been shown by historians, atheist and Christian alike, that science was birthed in the rational thought of Christianity and monotheism. There's a Nobel Prize-winning biochemist by the name of Melvin Calvin. And he says this, he says, This monotheistic view seems to be the historic foundation for modern science. Or historian Paul Chamberlain, he says it this way, The scientific enterprise, as we know it, would probably not exist had it not been for Christianity. So based on these facts, most scientists and historians agree that science and faith are not only compatible, but they can be beautiful, comp beautifully complementary. They go together like, like grits and butter. They may not say it that way. That's how I say it. 
Yet somehow there's this myth that persists that Christianity persecuted science, that Greek learning stopped with Christianity, that Christianity, instead of nurturing science during the Middle Ages, actually plunged science into the Dark Ages. That scientists really only pursue knowledge as they step away from their faith, and science and faith are completely incompatible. Why does that myth persist? Who's spreading it? A few years ago, A.C. Grayling, who's a prominent atheist and a professor at the University of London, wrote this column in London's The Guardian. Get ready for this. This is what he said. He said, Such was the beginning of Christianity. By the accident of it being the myth chosen by Constantine for his purposes, it plunged Europe into the Dark Ages for the next thousand years. Scarcely any literature or philosophy and, and the forgetting of the arts and crafts of classical civilization before a struggle to escape the church's narrow ignorance and oppression saw the rebirth of classical learning and its ethos of inquiry and autonomy in the Renaissance. And here's the deal. That's just not true. The myth of Christianity, the accident of Constantine choosing it, Christianity plunged Europe into the Dark Ages, that there was no literature, philosophy, or arts, or crafts in the Middle Ages. None of that's true, and no modern historian would sign off on that. So why did he say it? Well, he was challenged by this. He was challenged by several people who wrote back and said there was a lack of truth in his comment. So Grayling later issued this apology, saying that his column was brief, conversational, rhetorical, and polemical only. You know what those words mean? It's, it's brief. In other words, well, if I would have more time to explain myself. Right? And it's conversational. It's just an opinion to start a conversation. And here's where it hurts. He says, he says it's rhetorical, which means intending to persuade, and it's polemical. It's against something. In other words, what Grayling is saying is that my words were intended to start a conversation, using my persuasive ability against Christianity, using things I personally know may not be historically true. Is that unbiased? That's a problem, isn't it? In fact, I, I love this. It's so much of a problem there's this guy named Tim O'Neill. He's a member of the Atheist Society of Australia, and he's a medieval history professor. And he recently criticized his fellow atheists for using history incorrectly. And in his book, this is what he says. In the academic sphere, at least, this conflict thesis of a historical war between science and theology has been long since overturned. It is very odd that so many of my fellow atheists cling so desperately to this long-dead position that was only ever upheld by amateur 19th-century polemicists and not the careful research of recent objective peer-reviewed historians. This is strange behavior for people who like to label themselves rationalists. You see what Dr. Tim O'Neill is saying? And this is, this is an atheist historian. This is what he's saying. In other words, this supposed historic conflict between science and faith has been imagined, popularized, sensationalized by people who have underlying beliefs and motives. They have a philosophy behind what they're doing and what they're saying. And guys, don't get me wrong, if you're a skeptic here today, if you're not a person of faith, this is not a criticism per se of atheists. There are many atheists who understand history and promote it properly. 
And honestly, there's people of faith who will twist facts to prove their points. But, but you see what's happening here is that biases, underlying beliefs, underlying philosophies can influence what we say is true and what's going on. I have quote after quote about this. I'm, I'm going to say one more. One more good quote. Um, have you guys heard of Anthony Flew? Anybody? Anthony Flew, like before Richard Dawkins, before Christopher Hitchens, before, you know, any, any of these other guys like Sam Harris, he was the world's foremost atheist. And he shocked the world a few years ago, in 2008, when he switched positions right toward the end of his life and stating now that he believed there was a God. Wild, wild stuff. And here's one of the things he said about Richard Dawkins, which he credits Dawkins as a scientist, but he says, I would say that Dawkins is selective to the point of dishonesty when he cites the views of scientists on the philosophical implications of the scientific data. See, what's happening here is that there's an issue behind the issue. It's not just about science and Christianity. It's about underlying beliefs that people are bringing to the table and then choosing a side. Have you ever done that before? Anybody ever been guilty of that before? Try to per persuade somebody of your position because you hold an emotional attachment to it? Think we're so passionate about our underlying beliefs and philosophies. If we aren't careful, we come to the evidence already wishing to prove something. And it happens on both sides of the issue. Um, it's just as true of Christians as it is of atheists because we can have these deeply held beliefs and we look to support them. We don't always dig deep. Often we choose to dig into our positions and we hold on with this like bulldog tenacity to our issues behind the issues. We choose, don't we? We choose right or left, conservative or liberal, Democrat, Republican, secular, evangelical. And the, the rip keeps growing and we shout louder from one side to the other as the chasm grows. And this just happens within the church and without the church all the time. And that is not the unity the love, the humility, the grace that God is calling us to. Amen? Amen. It's not allowing the gospel to inform our attitudes and positions. But today we have a chance to change all that as we get to our final point. Because culturally, a lot of stuff has shifted that we just walked through. Like, honestly, most of it, if you talk to people today, most of the stuff from history, most of the stuff from philosophy just isn't an issue for most people anymore. When most people are asking this question, are science and Christianity compatible? They aren't concerned with the history of science and Christianity. They aren't even as concerned with the scientific method proving things like miracles and signs of wonders. In fact, did you know that there's this like growing, there's this growing um, wave of people who believe that science and, and the supernatural are compatible? What, what's responsible for that? What's responsible for all these people who are very scientifically minded, all of a sudden kind of changing their position on spirituality, on miracles, in the last 80 years. Well, have you guys heard of quantum physics? Yeah, anybody see down in the rabbit hole? Oh yeah, man, you start talking about string theory and dark matter. See, what happened was there was this time at the turn of the century where there was, basically, science was totally built on these universal laws. What goes up must come down. Energy and matter can neither be created nor destroyed. Things tend toward disorder. You guys have heard this stuff, right? Universal laws of science. 
And at the turn of the 20th century, scientists just assumed they had uncovered all the universal laws that governed our existence. But when people like Einstein and scientists like Max Planck started fiddling around with quantum physics and subatomic particles, they realized something. That all those universal laws just don't really seem to apply at the subatomic level. For instance, you can't predict whether a subatomic particle will behave like matter or energy, or waves or particles. It's a whole new ball game. And so we as a culture move further and further away from that empirical data, universal laws view of the world, and things opened up. Everything became possible. People started getting curious about things like that, that, that science once said were impossible. So the real issue for most people today with science and Christianity comes down to one subject. Guess what that is? Anybody? Are you guys all totally asleep? <laughs> it's, it's because we didn't have the PowerPoint. That's what it is. You guys would have been asleep. Those pictures were amazing. You guys should have seen the picture. comes down to one issue, really. Evolution. Evolution. That's the barrier. When people talk about science and Christianity, that's their question. Our culture basically believes this, that if you are an Orthodox Christian with a high view of authority of the Bible, you can't believe in evolution in any form at all. Atheist Richard Dawkins says it. Creationist uh, Ken Ham says it. It seems to be the only thing we can get atheists and creationists to agree on. And so more and more... This general population is treating that as a given, and the rift just grows wider, and the voices just get louder. If you believe in God, you can't believe in science or evolution. And if you believe in science or evolution, you can't believe in God. And I have a question for you today. Is that actually true? The way Tim Keller asks it, he says, do we have to choose between an anti-science religion or an anti-religious science? I want you to consider this, and I'm not, I'm not going to try to convince you of any one position here. We need to walk through them, though, because th this is a minefield, and I expect it to be tense, okay, but just hang in there with me. There's a huge and growing list of Christian thinkers, pastors, scientists, theologians who are proponents of a view called evolutionary creation. I want you to look at this picture. N.T. Wright, uh, you guys can probably read the names there. It's a bit small. Tim Keller. Alistair McGrath, D.A. Carson, J.I. Packer, Michael Horton, I'll just, name, just to name a few, right? The late Dietrich Bonhoeffer, C.S. Lewis, Karl Barth, John Stott, all these pillars of the faith, some of the best and brightest minds of Christianity. Subscribe to this view. Now, how can that be? Let's at least consider this. Okay, today, how can that be? Well, they start with the text. They look at Genesis 1 through 3. And when you read Genesis 1 through 3, one thing's apparent. It stands out very differently from the rest of Genesis. It's poetic. When you read Genesis 1 through 3, it's, it's very different. And they say that it's still 100% true in what it's conveying in the same way that the poetry of the Psalms tells us things like, you guys have read the Psalms, places where it says things like the earth is built on the pillars of God. Well, we know scientifically there are not literal pillars under the earth, right? But it's poetry. It means that God has established the earth. It means something very true and beautiful, but it's using it in allegorical and metaphorical ways. 
Or, or one of the Psalms says, God blows smoke from his nostrils and fire from his mouth. That may be literally true. I don't know. I don't think it is, though. I think that's a metaphor for something true about God bringing his righteous vindication to save his beloved. Biblical poetry is not always literal, but it still conveys deep, profound truth about who God is and what his creation is. So these, these theologians and brilliant minds, they say Genesis 1-3 through 3 conveys that God is the creator and sustainer of life. It conveys why God created the cosmos for his own glory. And they say that there's plenty of room in the tent of Christianity to believe that he could have used evolution or areas of evolution as one of his creative devices. Now, how can they say that? Because they point to Genesis 1 through 3, and they say it's not making a scientific explanation of how God created the cosmos. Rather, Genesis 1 through 3 is making a point about why he created them and who he is. Here's a couple of quotes from them. Here's John Stott in his book, Understanding the Bible. What may we say about the how of God's creative activity? Not many Christians today find it necessary to defend the concept of a literal six-day creation, for the text does not demand it, and scientific discovery appears to contradict it. The biblical text presents itself not as a scientific treatise, but a highly stylized literary statement. Moreover, the geological evidence for gradual development over thousands of millions of years seems conclusive. It is most unfortunate that some who debate this issue of evolution begin by assuming that the words creation and evolution are mutually exclusive. One more uh, quote from N.T. Wright. How many of you guys, anybody, anybody know N.T. Wright? Oh yeah, some fans there. Christians and secularists alike are in danger of treating Darwin versus the Bible as just another battlefield in the polarized cultural wars. This grossly misrepresents both science and faith. I think, for instance, that the six days of Genesis is a way of saying that when the good creator God made the world, he made heaven and earth as the space in which he himself was going to dwell. And he shared the earth bit with human creatures. To flatten that out into simply saying that the world was made in six days is almost perversely to avoid the real thrust of the narrative. The meaning of Genesis is that the world was made to be God's abode, God's home, God's dwelling. He shared it with us, and now he wants to rescue and redeem it. And I, I know you say, but wait a second, aren't there other views out there in the Christian tradition? Yes, there are scientists and pastors and theologians who would disagree with that. And they would say that the world was created in six literal days. That if you can believe the first four words of the Bible, in the beginning, God. If you can start there, anything's possible. And they got a point. God could have used special creation to create things exactly as they were. And God could have used evolution. But I was raised with more of a literal approach. And that's a prominent and plausible view. But who's right? Which one's right? I'll tell you. Just let me show you a scripture first to put this into perspective, okay? And I'm going to ask you a couple of questions as we wind down. Here's a scripture from Job. God is talking to Job, and it says, The Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. And he says to Job, Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man, because I have some questions for you. All right, brace yourselves. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who, det 
determined its dimensions and stretched out its surveying line? What supports its foundation and who laid its cornerstone as the morning stars sang together and the angels shouted for joy? Let's answer that question. None of us were there when God created the cosmos. We have these couple of chapters in Genesis as a poetic window into that grandeur. But let's remember something. God's a little bit bigger than us, isn't he? He says through Isaiah the prophet, my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are above your thoughts. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so high are my thoughts above your thoughts. And God's infinite truth is never going to be able to grasp by, by our finite minds. We can't handle it. So let's approach this subject with a great humility. Yeah? Let's handle his word with reverent humility. That in mind, a couple of questions for you. Let's get really practical. When you find someone who's struggling with unbelief because of this view of evolution versus creation, do you have to convince them to be a six-day creationist in order to be a Christian? What issues are important enough that we should allow them to become barriers to someone believing the gospel? Is our interpretation of Genesis 1 through 3 as either literal or poetic? Is that as central as the gospel? At what level do we need to engage in a cultural war when countless souls hang in the balance? Souls that don't need a war chief, they need the great physician. Amen? I love John 7. Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, anyone who believes in me may come and drink, for the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. Jesus didn't say, anyone who believes in me in a literal six-day creation. He just said me. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus is the gospel. Now, I'll offer some opinion here. I believe that regardless of where we stand on the issue, whether you're a literal six-day creationist or whether you're an evolutionary creationist, regardless of where we stand on the issue, I believe we have the option to say to our unbelieving friends that there is a really large group of Christians who do not see this as a barrier, but they see how God and his sovereignty could have used either process to bring the world to where it is now. You can say that and be faithful to God's word. And guess what you just did the moment you said that? You just removed the barrier to the gospel, and now you get to talk about the issue behind the issue. You get to deal with the heart. Because there's always an issue behind the issue. But who's right? The young earth special creationists or the old earth evolutionary creationists? I'll tell you. I'll tell you who's right. The one whose underlying philosophy and belief is the gospel. The one whose motives are glorifying Christ instead of themselves. The one who fights not for their position, but for the unity of the church. The one who prioritizes God's mission over their own. The one who holds their interpretation of scripture, whatever it is, with the love, humility, grace, and unity that Paul reminds us of in Philippians 2. So I'm going to read that scripture one more time. Therefore, if there's any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and with one mind. Do nothing, nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. That is how we're called to walk through this minefield. 
and countless other minefields. We're called to love, to unify, to give up our preferences, to humble ourselves. But let me ask you something. Let's get to the real point here. How is that even possible? If you're like me, no matter where you stand on this issue, today may have triggered some explosive emotions for you. As we traipsed through this minefield, there may have been a couple explosions that went off in people's hearts. How do we live like Paul is telling us when such volatile emotional issues are in play? Honestly, I'll tell you the truth, we can't. We cannot do it. We'll either blow up on somebody or we'll choose to become apathetic and avoid the conflict. But it's really hard when you, when you genuinely care for something. It's really hard to stay engaged and keep our cool. Amen? You guys find this? All, all the married people say amen? Yeah. And it's bigger than this issue. It's about all the beliefs underneath the beliefs. The, the, our exposed nerves, our fears, our desires, the scientism, the religiosity, the, the pride, right? And it's also bigger than this issue because Paul's word speaks to all the other issues we may hold dear. Maybe today you come here and you say, I don't even care about science versus Christianity. But you may care about other things. How about... How about race relations, gay rights, gun control, social justice, politics? It's, it's an endless list, isn't it, of things that we can care about? We all have our issues, our soft spots, our exposed nerves. How do we respond when someone steps on the minefield of our deeply held values? Well, if you don't want to lash out and you don't want to disengage, we have only one hope. And thankfully, Paul isn't finished. Paul goes on to say this, and it's a, it's a verse we read several times over the last three months. He doesn't just tell us we have to muscle up and do it on our own. Here's what he says. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in, in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used of his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see the love of God for you in Christ today? His grace, his humility, his willingness to lay down everything for you. Because here's the main point today. That's the only thing that can change your heart and free you from the pride and fear that set the minds off when people come walking through the minefields of our lives. In fact, that's the only thing that can free you from creating the minefield in the first place. See, Scripture says it, that one day every knee will bow. Jesus doesn't need us to defend him. In the end, he wins. But he calls us to represent him, to resemble his character. What's more important than the truth we proclaim is the attitude with which we proclaim it. To show the watching world that the way to victory is through surrender, the way to joy is through suffering, the way to exaltation is through humility, the way Jesus is glorified is not by us picking up our swords like Simon Peter, but through our willingness to lay down our preferences, our egos, and our very lives for him. 
This world will be saved not through our great arguments, but through our great love. Do you see the call of the gospel in your life today? If you do, I pray you'll come. And we're going to have communion here in a second. In fact, will you stand with me? I'm going to call you guys. I'm going to pray here in just a second. But I'm going to call you guys to repent and believe the gospel today. Whether it's your first time or your 101st time, we get the opportunity to come down as family and just confess our failures and confess our faith today. So I'm just going to ask you guys to consider these questions as we come down. And what we do every Sunday is we, we take communion together in groups of two or three, and we ask each other these questions. And, we, and you can just choose one question maybe, or if one stands out to you more than the others. But, but just confess and believe, and we get to remember God's sufficiency for us in Christ through communion. It's a beautiful time. If you're new, if you're not a believer, or or if you're just uncomfortable with this, I I challenge you. You can either come and just listen in and and check out as as believers partake, or if you'd like to hang back, I'd love to come get to know you and give you a big hug because I'm sick. Just kidding. But, But let me ask you this in all seriousness. Repent. What areas am I living proudly? Where am I not trusting God's gracious sovereignty in my life? In other words, where have I allowed pride or fear to build minefields in my life, in my relationships with other people? And maybe it has to do with science versus Christianity. Maybe it's some wholly different subject. Proclaim your faith that his glory is enough. You don't need to win arguments. We need to win souls. Amen? Confess your unbelief in the gospel and receive the faith of all the sufficiency that Christ has for you. How has God's humility in Christ freed me from fear, from pride? And what does life look like resting and working from his gracious sovereignty? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I hear what somebody wrote about Jesus 2,000 years ago. Just stand in awe of this. For by him, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, all things were created by him and for him. God, I pray that you'd help every one of us to be open and humble before your truth today. How odd we are. How humbled we are by this reality in which we find ourselves living. Thank you for Jesus who made it. God, when we think that he cares about our little lives, he notices us. He actually became one of us. He died on a cross for us to give us a hope. How grateful we are. So we give you our worship. We give you our promise to humbly pursue both unity and truth. We give you our lives for your mission and your purpose. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.